clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's Uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today's event will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming, and President and COO of the Blackstone Group, Jonathan D. Gray. If you're unable to stay with us for the duration of today's program, a recording will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com, and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, please allow me to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom, and good morning, everybody. Our Rockefeller colleagues, clients of Rockefeller, and other friends of Rockefeller Capital Management. Welcome, as Tom said, to the 23rd in our series of client discussions that we initiated when the pandemic first hit last March. It's my great pleasure today to welcome John Gray with us. John Gray, the president and COO of Blackstone, has had an incredible career and there's still a long run ahead. He joined Blackstone in 1992 and over the next 20 years helped build the largest and most successful real estate platform in the world. In 2016, he became president and chief operating officer of Blackstone and is a member of Blackstone's board of directors. John sits on the management committee and most of, his, of its investment committees. It's great to have you here with us this morning, John. Welcome. Greg, it is great to be here. Uh, John, uh, uh, we're going to talk uh, with you about a, a broad cross-section of topics given your reach the company that you're running, domestic, global, pandemic, economic outlook. But we'd like to start with uh, Blackstone, which is uh, one of the incredible success stories of the last 30 years, uh, and uh, and go a little bit back on Blackstone and on John Gray's history with it as you're coming up uh, uh, on your 30th anniversary with, uh, with Blackstone, having had such an incredible impact on the firm. Well, um, as I said, it is great to be here. What you're doing with this series, Greg, is terrific. And hello to everybody out there listening in. Um, the good news is my biography is remarkably short. Uh, I grew up in suburban Chicago. I'd never been to the East Coast. Uh, I, I'd never been to New York until I got to college. I went to the University of Pennsylvania and I decided to get a dual degree. I was in the college as an English major. I was in Wharton with a finance concentration. And my senior year in romantic poetry class, I met a young woman. And three weeks later, I got a job working for a small investment and advisory firm. And here, as you said, nearly three decades later, I'm still with the same woman and I have the same job or certainly the same firm. <laughs> And it has been an incredible run, and I've been so fortunate. I started initially uh, in our M&A and private equity area as an analyst. And then um, it was during a, a coming out of the early 90s recession. Real estate had been hard hit. And the co-founders of the firm, Pete Peterson and Steve Schwarzman, in one of their many visionary calls, said we should go into real estate. And uh, I got tapped on the shoulder to be the first junior person to join the business. And I thought it was gonna be a short run. And I spent, as you pointed out, a very long time in that business, uh, helping, you know, helping it grow to be the largest real estate investment business in the world. And then now three plus years ago, I got asked to become the president and chief operating officer of the firm. 
and it's been an incredible joy uh, to do this. It's a full-time job, but I love it. And I think what's made this firm uh, so successful over a long period of time is that we've really stuck with our core values as the firm has grown. And so even though we have more people and much more in the way of capital, the commitment to deliver for our clients, the relentless focus on great returns, the constant striving for excellence in everything we do, and a real sense of meritocracy, sort of the core values have stayed the same, a little bit like your Rockefeller business and serving your clients over a long period of time. And that's allowed us to grow. And, and Steve Schwarzman has always pushed us to think about how can we serve our clients in more ways? How can we expand in real estate, start in the US opportunistically, then Europe and Asia, then core plus real estate, mortgage debt, meds debt. How can you continue to grow the platform? And it makes the business really exciting. And I like to say that if you love investing, then for me, it's it's like um, you know playing shortstop at Yankee Stadium because every day there's a new intellectual challenge, and we try to figure it out, get to the right answer for our clients, and I get to do it with incredible people, which makes it a lot of fun. John, it's great to uh, hear that description because uh, as you run through some of those things, that is exact, exactly as you said what we're striving to do here in a slightly different uh, way but you immediately mentioned excellence on your list. We talk about that constantly. You're trying to do more and more with clients. As you and I have discussed at Rockefeller, we're looking to holistically take care of clients across the full range of their needs. And if we can do it well across that landscape, you get a deeper and better relationship. And Blackstone has relentlessly done that, as you said, and grown from the beginnings as a private equity firm. And look at uh, the range of things that you do for clients now. Yeah, it's broadened tremendously. The, the concept's the same, which is deliver great returns, but continue to find new ways to serve your clients. So private equity becomes core private equity, European and Asian private equity, secondaries, tactical opportunities, uh, growth equity, life sciences, real estate, as I described, credit, you do it in distressed, in mezzanine, in Europe, in energy, in direct lending, similarly in hedge fund solutions, in insurance, in infrastructure. It's basically wash, rinse, repeat. What you want to do is identify a sector where there's real scale. You can attract an excellent team, ideally of some people from the outside, but your own people as well and then go all in to really become an expert in that area and deploy capital thoughtfully and have a group of people who can add value to the investments you make and then continue to do that. And that's been the, the focus and it's been a relentless focus on delivering returns because what you can't forget in this business, people talk about asset gathering. If you just gather assets and you have very sophisticated clients, they end up disappointed if you don't deliver. But if you do a great job, like a great restaurant, they come back, order more, try other things on the menu. And that's been the story for us. Yeah, well, uh, <clears throat> a tremendous story. And we're going to come back to Blackstone. But uh, let's expand out a little bit on some of the themes that are front and center that you get asked about constantly as you're talking to clients and, uh, and employees around the world. The first one, uh, you know, and the obvious one where almost every conversation starts now is 2021, the pandemic. Uh, you know, for, for you and me and, and others that have been around for a bit, uh, at the beginning and throughout, you get asked, uh, you know, September 11th, credit crisis, pandemic, similarities, differences. This is clearly something that nobody's ever seen and that has all of its own uh, 
challenges and characteristics, including the fact that it's virtually affected, maybe not even virtually affected the entire world. Uh, so what, first, first question, closer to home at Blackstone, what have you done to maintain this culture, which I know you care so much about at Blackstone, and it is so tight, uh, with so many people working remotely and, and travel a bigger challenge. So, you know, you haven't been to employees outside the U.S. in a while. So how, what have you done differently during the pandemic to keep Blackstone, Blackstone from a cultural standpoint? I think that's the key question for these businesses, which is how do you maintain culture when you're physically apart? So uh, one of the first things we did was we created what we call Blackstone TV. Every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m., we said, we're gonna get everybody together, 2,500 professionals around the world. We're gonna talk about the trends we're seeing, what's happening with the pandemic, what's happening in markets, where we're deploying capital, where we're raising capital. Um, we try to create a human touch too. talk about some of the great things we do to give back. And also we have a photo contest. This week's contest was pictures of you with women you admire. And if you win the photo contest, you get a t-shirt, you get some notoriety. Um, but we really want to keep people connected when they're apart. And we think this is really hard. Also, what we've tried to do is get people back in the office safely on a voluntary basis. I came back in July. We had people back, um, professionals on the investing side, post Labor Day, uh, we had about half of them in the office, about a quarter of our overall people. Um, we did testing here on site, contact tracing, we paid for transportation. Uh, the numbers went down as the pandemic spiked over the winter, they're starting to go back up. It's really because we see the business as an apprenticeship business for younger people and a business that requires that organic creativity that comes from being together. So on the one hand, the technology is great. We've used it a lot. On the other hand, old fashioned, being together in an office, being in a conference room, even if we're wearing masks today, we prefer that. And when we get to the other side of this, we definitely wanna bring our people back together again. I wanna get back on planes, I'm sure you do as well, see our colleagues in London and Hong Kong and Tokyo and Mumbai, because there is something special about being together. And that has been a great challenge. And I know some companies are saying they're gonna work completely virtually. I think that's very, very hard, particularly training young people. Yeah, we have the same view, uh, John, on, the, on this notion of long-term virtual. I, I don't really understand how uh, they'll be able to create a culture that uh, is consistent across Blackstone or Rockefeller Capital Management or wherever. You know, what we've been telling our team is that, uh, you know, we'll use the the, uh, the efficiencies that come from how effective things like this have worked, but we're still going to be more of an office-based organization where clients get to come see us. And we also have this sharing of ideas, which I know you believe passionately in at Blackstone, that you can come up with greater with better ideas and, and frankly even ultimately leading to better performance by having colleagues uh, physically together uh, at different points in time. I agree completely and so I think people are going to want to go back to offices when this is over and for us it's an exciting moment and the good news is we're getting much closer. Yeah but, but maybe we stay with that for a second John we were talking about that in advance. Uh, uh, it seems like, and you've been in New York on a regular basis, and you've been leading your your uh, your private equity team there, uh, as you said, with all the the safety measures that you put in place. 
But it uh, seems like, uh, uh, from your perspective, you know, over the next 90 days, things could uh, start to change pretty dramatically, even in the big cities like New York. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the numbers, particularly with the news on J&J, uh, we're going to be up to 3 million vaccines a day in the U.S., and we've got 330 million people. Not everyone's going to take a, a vaccine shot. We've already vaccinated, I, I think we've done 50, 60 million shots. Obviously, some of those go twice into people. But you play out the numbers over the next three months, and we should be in a very different world. And I think the implications of that are significant. Um, I think particularly for investing. You know, right now we're still mostly hunkered down and much that happens in the physical world has been curtailed. And I think what we're gonna see here is something akin, I, I think about that opening scene in the first Star Wars movie where they turn on the grid. Um, it's to shoot the Death Star in that case, not great, but it's that visual of things going back on. I think we're gonna experience that. And what that means is, you know, people have been sitting at home. They now have just in the U.S., I think the number is two and a half trillion of incremental savings. They paid down their credit card debt in uh, unprecedented 15 percent. And we're all suffering from global cabin fever. We're, we're, we want to go out to a ball game. We want to go to a concert. We want to go dancing, go to a wedding get on a plane, go to Orlando, go to Las Vegas, whatever it is. And that's all going to happen pretty simultaneously. And I think that's going to lead to an enormous surge of economic activity. Now, the downside of that is I do think you'll see commodity prices go up. We've begun to see that. Energy prices go up. Wages go up, which is a positive. But I do think people will talk more and more about inflation. And I would expect the long bond to be above where it was pre the pandemic level, because we'll have a strong economy and we'll have a lot more liquidity um, out there. And I, I just see we'll have higher sense of inflation. And so what's possible in 2021 is that what we see is the economy outperforms the markets, the inverse of what we saw in 2020. And it doesn't necessarily mean the markets go down sharply, but they may need some time to grow into the high multiples because there's going to be pressure on those multiples even as the earnings grow. So it, it's a prognosis of a different world. It's obviously not a great world for long-duration bonds. It has a negative impact as well on some of the most speculative companies where earnings are way out in the future, some of the tech and um, renewables businesses that are trading on sales rather than earnings. But it is a world where some of these physically impacted businesses see a real surge in activity. So I think it's going to look very different and feel very different from us, certainly six months from now. Yeah, I think that's spot on. The, the metaphor I've been using, John, is a slingshot is coming. You mentioned two and a half trillion of incremental savings, cabin fever. And cabin fever, as, as we both know, extends across all age groups. This isn't just, you know, people in their 20s. It's, you know, my parents are 87 and 81 and they want to be doing things with other people. So I think this slingshot is coming. And then the challenge is what you said on the other side. What will it look like? John, how does that play out? You know, you talked about the long bond and inflationary pressure and, and what's What's helped us for so many years on that, on the other direction, is technology driving the cost of everything down, you know, get everything cheaper and cheaper on Amazon or wherever. 
how will those forces work their way through over the next, you know, once we get through the next 12 months? How do you see that? That is, I think, Greg, the great debate. Um, I think it's pretty easy to, to believe what I'm saying, which is near term, we're going to see a surge. We're going to see inflationary pressures. The debate is, will the demographics where we're, we're aging and most developed economies around the world are aging, creating more savings out there, um, less working age population, and this relentless uh, movement and growth in technology, which adds capacity and is highly deflationary. What does Airbnb do? It adds many more rooms. What are all these DoorDash and other things that do? What does Uber do? Adding more capacity to many industries. That will continue. So the argument, I think, from the you know uh, bond bulls would be, yeah, okay, next 12 months reopening, but then we're going to revert. Um, I think that's possible um, that we, you know, move back. But in the meantime, it could be painful for you while this we step back up to more the levels we were before. So it's I would still argue to want to be shorter duration on fixed income. Um, I, I think there's a lot of risk because the risk return for owning a bond that yields one or two percent is not a great trade. You're basically getting return on capital or of capital, not on capital, and you have risk of loss. So I would definitely shorten duration when I think about fixed income. Um, and I would be thinking about businesses that are going to benefit what I think of as some of these COVID impacted businesses in the near term. Uh, I think uh, spot on. Uh, John, can we go, given the amount of time you personally spend leading a global firm, both in terms of investments and clients? Can we move outside the U.S. for a second? Uh, maybe start in Europe, which looks to me, you know, they're they're struggling to to deal with vaccines, um, and and therefore to come out of this, and they've had a really hard time with it. You look at some of the economic contraction in the U.K. and across the continent. You know, at one point Germany looked like it was going to be a real COVID success story in terms of how to handle it, and that that's been a struggle there. So. Uh, how do you uh, see the European economies? Will they get the same slingshot that you and I were talking about in the U.S.? Is it later? Uh, you know, maybe maybe we start in Europe and then we'll get to Asia, where I know you spent a lot of time there and in China as well. So I would say starting in Europe, I think the path of travel is the same ultimately, but a slower path, Greg, to your point. I was talking yesterday with some executives in Switzerland, and they were talking about, even though they've handled the pandemic remarkably well, that the Swiss have been much later to get vaccines, and as a result, they're going to reopen later. What's interesting is, if you look across our portfolio, behaviors around the world have been remarkably similar. So we own a bank in the Baltics, and if you looked at spending patterns in Lithuania, they don't look much different than Los Angeles, right? People went home, they ordered food at home, you know, they ordered things online, they watched Netflix. So I think the reopening and the cabin fever being global is definitely the case. So Europe will benefit. I think Europe's challenges are, um, it's less oriented towards some parts of the economy, you know, the fastest growing parts of the economy. I'm sure we're gonna talk about some of these big themes, but the technology and life sciences, and, and therefore I think longer term, Europe has some challenges in that regard. You could see it in its stock market and stock market underperformance for a long period of time. And their banking system has been weaker, never really recapitalized after 08, 09, uh, they have much less robust capital markets. 
And so I think Europe, there are still interesting investment opportunities, but it faces more near-term challenges reopening on the vaccines and longer-term structural challenges. On Asia, they've done a better job across the region on the pandemic. China has clearly done the best job. I was on a call last week. Uh, there were 15 people on the other side in a conference room sitting together, and it's almost jarring to see people sitting closely together, not wearing masks. They've had great success there. But even Japan, Singapore, South Korea have done a better job, and so their economies have held up better. Now, they're getting vaccines at varying rates, so they may not get the, the full pop as quickly. But I think overall, Asia's in a better spot coming out of this. I think China in particular is very well positioned, again, because of technology, life sciences. And I think their domestic economy um, is really poised to grow well. Even though there are headwinds regarding the U.S.-China relationship, I wouldn't underestimate the inherent growth in China, the work ethic, what's happening, the dynamism in that economy. And so the, they're going to benefit both from the pandemic, but also, again, their structural strengths. And so I think China and Asia overall are interesting. I think most of the people listening in are probably under allocated to China and, and frankly, to Asia overall. And I would recommend upping that allocation because the growth will be higher. Yeah, and John, uh, if we stay with China for a second, uh, both economically and then more broadly in terms of the relationship with the U.S., uh, I saw that uh, the government is targeting more 6% growth uh, as opposed to 8 but in a post-pandemic world, still, you know, incredible for an economy of that size. Uh, you know, we have a new, a new administration in the U.S. on the heels of uh, what was becoming quite a confrontational relationship between the U.S. and China. How do you see things unfolding between these two massive economies uh, with so much at stake in terms of, uh, uh, you know, how the governments work together and frankly, how business investment opportunities exist on both sides? Well, you know, we're both so large and we're interconnected. It, it's gonna be very difficult. I don't see these great economies separating. And so our fates are tied in many ways. Um, which I do think is a positive. When, when countries become fully disengaged, if you think about North Korea or Iran, Russia, I think there's more risk. So I, I'm definitely a fan of engagement. Um, that being said, I think the, the tensions between the two countries will continue. Uh, it's bipartisan now in the U.S. politically. Um, I think the tone under a Biden administration will be different. The approach will be different. It'll definitely be more multilateral. Uh, there'll be more of a focus on some of the issues, um, say Hong Kong versus what happens with purely tariff and trade. But I think um, the tensions continue. I think the issues around technology, technology transfer, that will continue. And that will make it harder for businesses that, let's say, export from China back to the United States. But I don't think we'll see sort of a complete disengagement. I don't think we'll, we'll stop financial activities from happening. Um, as I said, I think the Chinese domestic economy will continue to grow. Uh, but this is this relationship's not going back to where we were, let's say, all the way back in the Obama administration. I, I think there's just um, sort of too much water under that bridge. I do think on the positive side, there'll be um, cooperation on things like climate and terrorism. There are some things where we have shared objectives, and I'm hoping the dialogue and certainly the tone, I think, will improve. 
But but I think the tensions will continue. But I think sometimes investors look at that and say, therefore, oh, China, I don't want to touch that. Again, I think that would be a mistake. And I do think China and the U.S., because of our great strengths, both of us, around technology, life sciences, mobility, the industry is really transforming the global economy. They're both places that should do fairly well going forward. I think uh, very well said. And that's a perfect transition, John, to um, something that you spend a lot of time on uh, at the top of, uh, of Blackstone and frankly have for years. I remember you talking about the in the real estate industry, the, the growth in warehouses outside of urban centers to service all of the Amazon product that was going in, you know, on a one day delivery. Uh, uh, and, and Blackstone spends a lot of time, and you spend a lot of personal time standing back and saying, what are these transformational themes behind which we want to do a lot of investing? And it shapes a lot of the portfolios that come together for you. So maybe, and I know you just kind of ticked them off, but it's interesting uh, if, you, if you pause on a couple of them to tell people why they're transformational and, and why Blackstone says, you know, over the next five or 10 years, we want to have a fair amount of our clients' capital in these spaces. Yeah. I think what's happened here is primarily because of technology, the speed of change is accelerating. And the old days of saying, well, this business, you know, grew at 3% a year, it's a supermarket business, it's a newspaper business, you know, and, and this is how it is. I don't think that's the way you want to invest because the this accelerated pace of change. So as you said, we try to look at the bridge of the ship at the big transformative changes that are out there. So one of them would be the digitization of everything. Essentially, everything's moving online. Shopping's moving online, content, watching movies, music, video games, uh, dating, gambling, gaming, software, medicine, everything's moving online. And so the question is, you know, do I want to be invested in businesses that are in the legacy world? Do I want to be in the movie theater business? Do I want to be in legacy physical retailers? No, I want to be against these great trends. In some cases, you can invest like we do. We Through our growth business, we invested in private equity in Bumble, the online dating business. We've invested in a bunch of enterprise software companies that have done phenomenally well. But in many cases, it's doing something that's one derivative off that benefits from that same mega trend. So you mentioned the warehouses. It's the biggest theme at the firm, our biggest theme in real estate. We own $100 billion of warehouses, mostly what we call last mile, basically to serve customers doing e-commerce. That's a way to play it. We've bought studio space. We bought online video game advertising businesses. How do you play these trends derivatively? Similarly, I'd say the movement to electrification of our lives and the grid and, and the green revolution that's coming. We're going to have hydrocarbons for a long time, but wind and water and solar and probably hydrogen, these more sustainable energy sources are coming and they're coming in a big way. And how can I invest directly into those? How can I lend in those? And we've done this across private equity and private credit. Um, but then again, how can I do it one derivative off? Utilities, not the most exciting businesses in the world, but they're going to move from natural gas and coal increasingly to these sustainable um, electric sources of energy. And they're going to invest a lot of capital and they get a, you know, a, a finite, they get a fixed return, which is favorable when they put a little bit of leverage on it. 
Yesterday, we were doing a, a, an investment committee on a company that does infrastructure around uh, electricity transmission. Historically, a boring business, but today, a much more interesting business. Similarly, life sciences, what's happening there? We're basically taking what we now know about genetics, genomics, and big data, and we're creating precision medicine the personalization of medicine, the days of going to the doctor and them saying, well, you've got this condition, maybe try this, maybe try that. No, it's gonna run through a machine. It's gonna look at your genome and say, this is the treatment. And as a result, there are gonna be all different therapies that need to be created, all these cocktails and so forth. And so again, what have we done? We've invested in life science office buildings. We bought $20 billion of those. We've invested in the actual therapies themselves through our life science business that do bladder cancer treatment, kidney disease, heart disease. We've done some logistics businesses that cold storage, that do cold storage of these therapies. And we've invested in private equity and companies that, that bring these uh, therapies, commercialize them and run the trials. And so if you think about investing more and more thematically, bridge of the ship, and then you express it in different ways, that's how we're doing it. I would just close by saying, not everything is technology driven. So global travel, aging populations, rise of the middle class in China and India, those are big mega trends you can invest against that will benefit as well. But I do think of inv as investors, we so often sort of think of the individual house, we got to think about the neighborhoods we're investing in. And the more exposure we have to these big trends, the better off we'll be. Well, that was a, a great uh, uh, rendition of why Blackstone's ahead of the curve. Uh, you know, John, when you were talking about uh, medicine, I was thinking about, um, remember the machine that uh, IBM built Watson to play against uh, the, the top guys in, in uh, Jeopardy, including Jennings, uh, who, who ultimately was supposedly the GOAT when he won recently. Um, but one of the applications they were trying to use Watson for was medicine, where you would put the symptoms in. Uh, you know, somebody's got a, a series of symptoms, and doctors are so busy. You go to the you used to go to the office, as you said. Now a lot of it's online, and uh, and they would look at you and and they would say, "This is what you have." And 90% of the time they would be right, but 10% of the time it might be something different. You load it into Watson, and Watson says. 90% of the time it's X, but did you look at this 10%? Because it's a machine saying these characteristics line up sometimes with this. Medicine is gonna be completely different, as you know, and you are investing uh, because of technology and, and, and what, what it can do to everything from diagnosis to, to treatment. Um, one of the other things that, that we, we, uh, we looked at a long time ago when I was at Morgan Stanley was the, the, the amount of time from the development of a technology until half of the American households used it. And the light bulb was like 50 years, the radio 35, the TV 25, the iPhone was four years. Comes out in 07 and in 2011, half the country has an iPhone. So this is your whole speed of pace in technology. Greg, if you look at those charts, it's those uh, adoption curves have accelerated. They all seem to go up like this exponential like this so quickly. And what, what the internet does and technology does, it democratizes entrepreneurship, right? So if you think about it in the old days, if you had a consumer product, there was a finite amount of shelf space. If you had a, a TV show, there was CBS, NBC, and ABC. Now there's a whole world out there. So you can create a business and it, people around the world can see it, can fall in love 
and it can grow to enormous scale and profit potential. And that's why as things accelerate, you have to look forward and it's harder as investors. And the danger of course, is you get some of the froth we see in the public markets where some of these businesses may not have an opportunity to make lots of money. They're valued at huge prices. And so what you wanna do is try to separate the wheat from the chaff, find really good, strong, long-term businesses. In our case, try to get them maybe a little earlier or try to get them, as I've been saying, one derivative off. But I think this sort of forward looking as we deploy capital is increasingly important as the world changes so quickly. hundred percent. I think it'll continue to differentiate Blackstone because it's hard to do. I mean, you got to look at it and you got to then, uh, you got to have the right macro themes. And then you got, as you said, make sure you're avoiding the, the, the things that aren't, are, are not going to be able to handle the pace of change. Uh, so it, it really is a differentiator for for, uh, for Black Sun today. And I've watched you all extend into things like Bumble, uh, which is tied to the macro theme, which which frankly would, would you know, at least from the outside, uh, and I know it was an enormous success for clients and for you all, but from the outside, not something I think Black Sun necessarily would have been in five or seven years ago. Yeah, no, we've definitely changed the approach, but we've always been thinking about how can we deliver for our customers? And I think this is it, you've got to look forward. And so, as I said, not all of these things will be super high tech. I mean, I'll just give you, you know, um, we bought in the UK, one of the leading student housing platforms, not a particularly high tech business, but what is it really playing on? It's playing on the rise of China and India, those folks who want to get their kids educated. And so again, it's a huge theme we're playing in an indirect way. We think it's gonna be a terrific investment for our customers, but it's about what's happening in the world, how it's going forward. So it's mostly technology, but it's also other things. And if you use this as sort of the lens to invest, I think it'll lead to greater success. That's terrific. Well, uh, John, a question uh, uh, came in from a client on, on Blackstone specifically. Um, and you know, we at Rockefeller, and I know you all are increasingly thinking about, uh, or not thinking about, acting in the sustainable investing space, uh, but it's a big focus for us in our asset management business and increasingly for families and clients, and particularly, as you know, raising them millennials and Generation Z. So th this question says, uh, increasingly companies are being asked by their clients for evidence that they're serious about such issues as sustainability, climate change, social responsibility. What is Blackstone doing about these issues? Uh, and what have you learned that you can share about how companies like Blackstone can reassure different stakeholders, and including shareholders, about uh, how they value these things? It's a great question. Um, I would say ESG is core to everything we do. It, it, you know, what is our basic business? We manage capital. We started primarily for pension plans, now for individual investors, for insurance companies. And, and the way we try to generate returns is by growing businesses, making them stronger, investing in communities, in real estate and infrastructure. And, and to build the best, most resilient companies, I think being strong in ESG is critical to that. So we've been doing this a long time. We had a chief sustainability officer a decade ago here at Blackstone. We created affinity and mentoring groups uh, at the firm to attract more talent. But I would say in the last couple of years, we've become more purposeful. And what we've come to realize is that the scale of business we're operating, the number of companies and assets we own and control, we can have an enormous impact. We can really be a force for good. And the way to do that is by establishing real benchmarks. So we went out there and announced 
probably four or five months ago that for every new company we buy or every piece of real estate, we're going to reduce hydrocarbon emissions by 15%. We're going to build it into the business plan. We've said also we made a separate announcement that our portfolio companies going forward, at least one third of the board is going to be diverse by race, gender, sexual orientation. Again, we can have a big multiplier impact. We've created a career pathways program that's saying at our portfolio companies, we want to try to help access under-resourced communities for talent, and then we want to help train those people when they join our those companies as well. We've expanded our foundations efforts where we help university entrepreneurs. We've now expanded that from 30 schools to 75. We added $40 million and we're focused on schools that are majority minority populations. Again, to try to create um, more democracy in terms of opportunity for young aspiring entrepreneurs. And then here at the firm, our analyst classes, which if you went back four or five years ago, were 15, 17% women, we're now 45% women in our analyst classes. And so I wouldn't say we're done, mission accomplished, that sort of thing. What I'd say is it's something that's core to us. I would say the events of the last year, the pandemic reminded us that if you have persistent problems and the climate is clearly one of those, we've got to try to address those. And then the events of the summer, what happened with George Floyd and this unfortunate reminder to all of us that as a country, we haven't addressed this fundamental inequity, I think created for us and many others a fiercer sense of urgency. And we said we want to try to make a difference and we can. So we're going to be focused on this. We're investing in this. We're helping make our companies better. We're investing in a bunch of businesses around sustainability. And I do think we're going to see from policymakers, from investors, and from our employees more and more uh, show more proof that we're doing this. And so for us, it, we feel like we're a little ahead of the curve, but we still have a long way to go. Well, that's a terrific, uh, a terrific answer and a terrific set of steps, that, as you said, that you've had in motion for a while. We, we have uh, some of the same uh, history and legacy, thanks, frankly, to the Rockefeller family. Uh, they were one of the first uh, proponents of sustainable investing and, in fact, coined the phrase impact investing at Rockefeller Foundation, one of our sister organizations, back in 2007. So we, we've been at it on the investing side for a while. But as you said, there are a lot of pieces to this. Uh, and it's uh, it's it's uh, it's a secular set of trends. And again, you know, as we're both familiar with millennials and Generation Z, this is uh, you know a lot of the things that are talked about here. This is not they're not going away. They are fundamental to the way they view the world. We get reminders constantly on things like climate. So you know, it sounds like Blackstone is on its front foot, not surprisingly here as well, which is important because uh, it is it is all going to continue to head in in that direction, as you said. For sure. I mean, this is a path to travel. By the way, uh, John Rockefeller founded Spelman University, um, right? Uh, yes. Critical, critically important university, first school, I think, dedicated uh, for African-American women. Um, and so it goes deep in your history in terms of that. And and I just think for, for us as individual, my wife and I spent a lot of time around low-income kids in New York City. For us as a firm, many of the leaders of the firm, Steve Schwarzman certainly, creating more opportunity for others and then trying to find ways to, to run our businesses and assets more efficiently, less of a negative impact on climate, and using our capital to transition to a cleaner future, better, healthier planet, it's a good thing.
Yeah, and John, that's, uh, th those are terrific. And I know that you're, you, uh, you and Mindy are personally involved in a lot of those things. Uh, but I, I also appreciate you mentioning Spelman College because uh, David Rockefeller Jr. recently said to me that that was one of the things of which he was proudest that his family uh, did. And, and the Rockefeller family, the breadth of the philanthropy that they did over the years, University of Chicago, Museum of Modern Art, Asia Society, parks uh, across the country, spectacular philanthropists. But Spelman College was, as you said, the, the first college um, uh, dedicated to the education of, uh, of African-American women in the, in the 1880s. And it was named after Laura Spelman Rockefeller. Uh, and that's where Spelman College came from. So uh, the, the family has that great legacy as well. But it, uh, I, I know that you and, and your uh, colleagues in Blackstone are on their front foot on this as well. John, maybe we can uh, go back because I can't uh, spend an hour with John Gray and not talk about uh, real estate moving forward. Um, including in things that people find uh, both interesting from an investing standpoint, but also how's my life going to change? So, you know, office space in places like New York and San Francisco, you know, the short question is, will it bounce back? How is, uh, what is the trajectory look, uh, you know, from, from the standpoint of office space and, you know, will these big cities return to the, you know, the, the dominance they had in, in attracting intellectual ca talent and young people, you know, there's maybe nobody better in the world to comment on uh, how office space and how these cities will look in two, five years. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd start with sort of uh, the big picture on real estate, which is that I think the outcome is going to be really dispersed. We talked about logistics that'll do well, uh, some of the specialty sectors like life science office buildings, um, I think rental housing, particularly in the near term outside of the big cities has done really well. There's been a shortage of rental housing and housing overall built since the financial crisis. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, I think retail, for the reasons we've talked about, will stay under enormous pressure. Um, and then there are sectors that have been cyclically hit that I think come back. Hotels uh, come back as people get back to travel. I think senior housing comes back because once it's safe again, you can put your parents and grandparents back in a senior living facility. I think you've hit on a sector that's really challenged in the short term, which is office buildings, and then more broadly, these big cities, particularly on the coast. And what I'd say is uh, near term, uh, people are going to be very nervous about leasing space. They're not sure about what employment's going to look like, where their people are. I do believe that most companies will conclude that they want their people back. But at the same time, they will provide more flexibility, more of a hybrid option for some employees that will shrink demand. And so I think office markets will stay under pressure for a while, but I don't think we're going to a full virtual world. So I still think there's a real need for office space. Now, specifically to these big cities, I would say their challenge, they have some real policy challenges. So. Uh, it's around um, affordable housing in these cities. It's around crime. It's around tax policy. And I think that as long as they make good choices in these areas, um, I think people want to be in these cities. And urbanization as a trend is powerful. If they make not great choices, then yes, we have the potential for greater acceleration to Austin and Raleigh-Durham and Nashville, Salt Lake City, these emerging cities. But I think betting against New York City or San Francisco is a mistake. People want to be in these places. And as long as we can get back to sort of normalcy, people are prepared to pay some extra taxes. 
um, the quality of life in these cities, the 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 theater, the 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 dynamism of people who want to be here. I think about my kids, you know, your kids. We we happen to have uh, two children who are friends in college. They're going to want to graduate and come to places like New York and San Francisco. So, I'm still positive on these places. But I do think the policy decisions that are made here could have a big impact. And so there is a bit of a wild card. But in the near term, when when we get back to this reopening, I think you'll see apartments fill back up and office buildings for the most part fill back up. Well, that's terrific. And, and I, I'm in full agreement on that, including, uh, you know, both uh, seeing it that way and advocating for you know uh, cities like New York, which is just an amazing place in so many ways and has been uh, through uh, so many different cycles, a, a magnet for for people who want to live in a dynamic setting with just so much. Uh, and I do remember, John, as to you, uh, you know, after September 11th, uh, I was at Merrill downtown, um, and actually we, we had to move out of our buildings for a while as we were across from the World Trade Center. And I I was running in the financial institutions group then, and I moved it into some extra space that Larry Fink had at BlackRock because he was leaving to go somewhere new in Midtown for three months because we couldn't go into our offices. But remember at that time, people said uh, everybody was, quote, everybody was leaving New York, nobody would live downtown. And then, you know, 18 years later, Brooklyn was the hottest place in the country, way beyond downtown. And downtown had had flourished so, so much. So predictions of the demise of New York, and granted this is uh, uh, more pervasive and, and, and broader than September 11th, but New York has bounced back from many things before. And you could say the same thing about London, fires, plagues, financial crises, terrorism. These places are remarkably resilient. They can go through dark periods, there's no question, but long-term I believe in this city. Excellent. John, another topic that is very uh, uh, important for our clients listening, you know, we have a lot of uh, our clients uh, on the call and our private wealth advisors and client advisors serving them. And, and our focus is on, on, you know, the high net worth part of the, of the client market. Uh, and we have a lot of them investing in alternatives through us, including in a lot of the Blackstone products. Uh, and we spent a lot of time researching and digging in and doing diligence on the uh, alternative offerings of, of firms like Blackstone to bring the best to our clients. And we've even had uh, opportunities for clients to invest directly in companies that are doing capital raising, uh, which is something that's become a little bit more commonplace in recent years. And this for us is a core part of what we're bringing to our clients, this access to the best alternative managers and the best opportunities. Is this something that you think uh, is a is a, a, a trend that will continue and, and broaden and grow uh, going forward? And, and uh, is it high on the, the list for Blackstone as well? For sure. And, and for us, um, raising capital for individual from individual investors has become a huge theme. I mean, we, we will raise more than $20 billion uh, in, in this channel, could be even as much as 30. I mean, I, I think what's happening is individual investors are, are realizing what institutions have over the last 10 or 20 years, which is alternatives can generate in many cases higher returns, they can do some things differently, uncorrelated returns in some cases. And if you look at large institutions, they're typically 
25 to 40 percent allocated to alternatives. And yet when you look at individuals, high net worth individuals, they're probably low single digits allocated to alternatives. And they have almost all their wealth and things that have daily liquidity. And yet if they could trade away a little bit of daily liquidity to get an excess return, let's say in private credit, that seems logical to me. If they could invest in something like the Blackstone private REIT, uh, that's outperformed the public markets because of our heavy orientation to logistics and rental housing and the geographies of where we've invested in, it seems logical to me. If they can afford to allocate some to longer term drawdown funds, in secondaries or Asia private equity or life science investing, again, that seems logical. And so I, I think for individual investors, particularly in this kind of rate environment, to say, maybe I should take 20 or 25% of my wealth and allocate away to some of these alternatives, trade the liquidity for the higher returns. And what institutions have seen is that's worked for them persistently over long periods of time. And so when I talk to CIOs almost every day, virtually all of them are increasing their allocation to alternatives. Individuals who are coming off a much lower base, I think have a lot of runway to do the same. We're seeing it, I think, around the world. I think it's going to accelerate. And the keys are, you know, who do you do it with? Do they have the platform, the reputation? Um, do they have the integrity? Do they have the ability to deliver returns over a sustained period of time? I think manager selection and alternatives is really important. But I do think this is where things are heading and you're going to see more of this. And I do think it's a very attractive trade-off for individuals in that we probably put too much of a premium on liquidity when you don't need that money, you know, at the close of business every single day. Uh, we, we have a, a very similar view here. And in fact, um, our manager selection, we, we uh, in our company is only three years old, but we've invested significantly and manager selection and resources around it so that we can go out and make sure that we're bringing the best uh, managers and the best ideas to our clients. John, you mentioned, and you don't do a lot of throwaway uh, uh, figures and lines, you mentioned 20, 25%. Is that uh, a range that you see for, you know, if there's a typical high net worth investor, is that a, a 20, 25%? Uh, the, the kind of range you see, or, you know, obviously it's yeah. individualistic, but. And yeah, I, I would defer to you on behalf of your clients, but I, I think as you move up the wealth spectrum, and obviously you have a lot of very wealthy clients, I think they begin to look and feel more like institutions. They're investing money, not necessarily just for themselves, but for their children and their grandchildren, and they become more and more like endowments. And therefore, they can afford to invest in things which have a longer time horizon. Obviously, if you have a finite amount of resources and you need to access your liquidity, then that 20, 25% is probably too high. What I would also say, Greg, is alternatives are not all the same, right? A drawdown private equity or real estate private equity fund, you may need to tie up capital for 10 or 12 years. A private credit vehicle or private REIT, you could have quarterly liquidity after a period of time. So I think every individual investor has to, you know, discuss this with their own financial advisor. But genuine, generally, when I think about the wealthiest people, I do think a higher allocation makes sense. Obviously, those of us who work at places like this invest a significant amount, sort of we eat our own cooking, and we've seen the results of investing in these places. But, but I would just say, I think it makes sense to have more exposure. Individuals have to make their choices, you know, whatever makes sense for them.
Yeah, that's spot on. We, we our uh, advisors, our private wealth advisors, client advisors, they spend a lot of time with clients on this topic now, uh, and and we work hard to figure out uh, a, a kind of steady flow of the best ideas given the macro uh, environment. Uh, you know, some of the things you talked about. Uh, you know, looking six and twelve months out and then beyond. And as you said, the constraint is in an individual circumstances. It really should be liquidity. Beyond that. Uh, we're encouraging our clients to, to do more in this space uh, and, and, and where they're able to, to function more from an investment standpoint, as you said, uh, almost like the institutional model, which is why I, I think for this, for Blackstone, I'm sure this is a, a, a tremendous growth area. You'll end up with, you know, many, many clients, uh, uh, many more clients than you have today as you broaden this. Yeah. And, and I think what's interesting is historically, Unfortunately, and you know this, Greg, going back even to the 80s, that people looked at private and alternatives with individual investors, and the goal was to charge as much as they can, and they weren't focused on the results. And so we brought a very different approach, our approach, which is these are long-term partners. They may not be institutions. They're individual investors. They're financial advisors. And if we do a great job for them, they'll come back and want to do more. And that mindset I think can build very long-term relationships and this can grow to be quite substantial. So when I look at our firm and how it's growing um, and the growth in some of these perpetual vehicles that are more yield oriented, it's pretty substantial. And, and we're raising in some cases a couple billion dollars a month across these areas because investors have confidence in us to deliver these differentiated returns and be good stewards of capital. That's great. Uh, John, uh, uh, as we start to wind down, uh, a, a question I wanted to ask you, given that you're raising your own uh, younger people and uh, you hire so many analysts and, and, and you talk so often with young people, uh, advice that you give them today, because uh, we, we hear a range of things. I, I have young people say to me, I'm, I'm coming out into the workforce at the worst possible time. You know, and and I'll say, you know, take a deep breath. It's like an 80 year career for you from here now or 70, a lot of years and a lot of things will happen. And actually there's tremendous opportunity in so many ways. But what advice do you give young people today? And has that changed as a result of the pandemic? You know, it's interesting. I think it's actually the best time to come out that that um, I think about my own career, going back to the beginning of the conversation, coming out in the early 90s, a much more modest recession, but you want to start at a time where things aren't at the top. You know, you, things are rebuilding. That's a good time to start a career. And then the technology discussion we had creates whole new opportunities. In the old days, you really had to be at a certain company. Building businesses took a long time. Building new divisions took a long time. Today, back to this pace of change, as a young person, there's so much more opportunity. So my advice would be go to work at a place uh, where you can learn a ton, where the company is oriented towards the future, has a mission you believe in, um, you're excited about going to work, and at some point you say you no longer feel that, you should feel empowered at some point to go off on your own or to go work at a smaller business because those opportunities are significant. And so I would say, I think it's a really exciting time. I think technology and the change in every industry is creating a whole new set 
of opportunities. The incumbents are not destined to win in every business. So for people going into new lines of business, there's a whole new opportunity. And some of the incumbents will come up with great new businesses. They'll transform. I think about the way Disney has gone to Disney Plus and moved from the old media to new. So it's not necessarily the young upstarts win, but all this change and then the recovery coming out of the pandemic, I think that creates exciting opportunities. So I would be energized. It may not be the easiest time to get a job, but once you do, I think the next five, 10 years will be pretty good. I completely agree with you. And I say that uh, all over the place, including John long-term. I mean, the impact of some of the transformational themes you talked about, medicine uh, is is progressing so quickly with technology and uh, you know the the uh, the way people eat and take care of themselves it's uh, you know there's so much positive for this generation coming out now I, uh, I agree John I have a, a maybe a last question here uh, which is an interesting one that came in um, another question on culture John and this is uh, sent in from one of our clients and all my years dealing with firms such as Blackstone I've been continually amazed when in, in discussing various potential deals or issues with portfolio companies. I've never heard anyone at Blackstone state an opinion and then wonder what Steve or John would think of their opinion, which says to me that you've engendered a culture where people are only concerned about what's right as opposed to what the people in power will think of them. How have you done that? People don't seem to be afraid. Well, I'll give Steve certainly the credit and Tony James, who you know, Greg, that that the idea is sort of truth telling. You're trying to get to the right answer. It doesn't mean you're gonna get to the right answer, but you're trying to figure out, should I invest in this business? Should I invest in that real estate? And somebody, a young person who's done the work, who's done the analysis, who's gathered the data, they've got an opinion that has real value that may be more informed than me who's just read a memo. So I wanna know what they think. I, I was talking yesterday with one of our senior executives um, about the idea of speaking up about saying what you feel, even if it's different. And I think it's just a place where everybody recognizes we're looking to, you, you know, it's a debate of ideas and getting to a right answer. And when you encourage that kind of debate and you don't punish people for speaking out, you get more of it. And it's one of the reasons why so many of my partners running different parts of the firm have stories like mine. They've been here 20, 25, 30 years because they're at a place where ideas are debated, they're called on the merits. It's not one person, you know, their fiefdom to decide everything. And Steve's really set that tone and, and it makes it really enjoyable to be part of this decision. As I said, we don't always get it right, but you're encouraging great people to come here. And, and what we've seen as a result of this is this year we'll have 20,000 people apply for the 100 analyst jobs. So thank goodness I don't have to apply for Blackstone today. But young people recognize this is a place where they can come, their voice is heard, and it's a meritocracy and they can move up quickly. And I think that is really special when you're building a business. And these are people businesses just like your business is. And, and I think it makes it fun. And you hear from different people with different thoughts. And um, I don't know, I think to be a great investment firm, you've gotta be open to a lot of different voices. That's a it's a great answer. It's a great compliment that uh, somebody would would send that question in. And uh, I have to tell you, as I listen to you uh, on on a lot of those bases, that is what we're trying to build here. You know, a firm focus on excellence, on on getting to the right answer wherever it comes from, on everybody feeling like they have a stake and a voice. Uh, and as you said, uh, 
if you speak out and you've got something to add, we want to in incorporate that, not have a sense of reticence around that. So we're working hard after three years to follow the, I don't know, 35-ish or 40 years of, uh, of Blackstone, uh, which have created an incredible place with Steve and Tony and others. And um, uh, I want to thank you for being here today. It's been uh, a, uh, a terrific set of insights for our clients. Um, Blackstone's a great partner and will be an increasingly important partner to us given our focus on best-in-class alternatives going forward. So, John, thanks so much for, uh, for being here. Greg, thank you. It was a terrific session. Be well, everybody. And uh, for, uh, for our clients and uh, our colleagues and friends of Rockefeller, uh, many thanks to John Gray again for his insights across the landscape today. We could have done two or three hours with John, and he would have had uh, cogent thoughts on, on everything. As always, I will close with a quotation, particularly given that it's Friday, and send you away for the weekend. Uh, was uh, something to think about. Uh, and I picked this one. It, it was sent to me yesterday uh, by David Ott, who is one of our partners over at Viking. Uh, and I'm using it today in part because it came yesterday, in part because I think part of the culture at Blackstone uh, is around this uh, quote that uh, David sent me. And, and John uh, and the leadership team there get it right in terms of how they treat people and, and the kind of place that they've created there. Uh, so the quote is John Wooden, and you don't have to be a sports fan to appreciate John Wooden quotes. Uh, for those who uh, are not sports fans, he was a famous UCLA basketball coach in the 60s and 70s. They won 11 out of 12 years or some uh, ridiculous amount. He was a mentor to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who went there uh, with the name Lou Alcindor out of a high school in New York in the 60s and was just a tremendous man who I believe lived to 99 or 100. And John Wooden said the following, quote, there is a wonderful, almost mystical law of nature that says three of the things we want most, happiness, freedom, and peace of mind are always attained when we give them to others. Give it away to get it back. And my point here is even in building and running a fantastic firm like Blackstone, that has to permeate the culture or they couldn't be as good as they are. So it's a tribute to John Gray as a person and the colleagues uh, that he's built that firm with. Uh, many thanks again for being here, John. All the best to everybody for a great weekend, and thanks for listening.